Well, good morning, Westmount. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 7. Of course, today, this morning, we return to our study in the book of Exodus. It's where we left off in the fall. We had been looking at the first seven chapters of this book. And just by way of recap, if you remember, this book opened with the remnant of 70, uh, the family of Jacob that uh, providentially arrived in Egypt, preserved in Egypt through the circumstances in Joseph's life. Um, we uh, looked at all the events that brought them there. And of course, as the book of Exodus opened there in Egypt, looked at how they multiplied even under oppression from Pharaoh to go from a group of 70 that was a remnant to be multiplying rapidly under Pharaoh and under the oppression of his hand. There in Egypt, of course, they were preserved even under an execution order from Pharaoh. Remember that Pharaoh declared that all male Hebrew babies were to be killed upon birth. That was the government order, and the Hebrew midwives, remember, they chose to obey God, to fear God, rather than man. Remember, it was the sovereign God, the God alone, that orchestrated these events. His might, his sovereignty, not just to preserve a people under bondage, but here it is, but his providence to raise up a deliverer. So not just to preserve them, not just to keep them there, but remember, as the events of Exodus unfold, we see that a deliverer is being raised up. And that started, of course, with a baby spared under that execution order. Moses, of course, the baby spared. And remember, the faith of his parents, Hebrews 11 in the New Testament, reminds us that by faith, his parents hid their newborn child for three months. Then, think of the faith to do this, release him on the water released to be providentially found by none other than Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's daughter. We looked at the providence of all of those events. Moses then raised for 40 years in Pharaoh's court, then choosing reproach and exile, turning his back on a life of privilege and luxury and opulence in Egypt and choosing instead the reproach of Christ in exile, as we talked about. Moses seeking refuge in Midian for another 40 years. So from Egypt in 40 years, then to Midian in 40 years. And what does he find there? He finds a home. He finds a wife. And we looked at how that quiet, idyllic life was divinely interrupted with God's call. Remember on the mountain, God's call on Moses appearing in a burning bush on the mountain of God. God came down, of course, with a revelation that included two things. One, the fulfillment of a promise. This was promise fulfillment, God coming down. Remember, and again, by way of recap, let's just consider those opening chapters of Exodus. Look at Exodus 3. Do you remember this specifically? Verse 8. This is what God says to Moses when he appears to him. I have come down to deliver them. This is my people out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. In other words, this is a promise that I made, and I'm here to fulfill it. And what is that promise? Again, by way of recap, remember Genesis 15. Let's look at Genesis 15, verse 13. This is what the Lord says to Abraham, the forefather of Moses. 
This is hundreds of years prior. He says this, Genesis 15, Know for certain, Abraham, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. In other words, that's the account that we've looked at in Exodus. Sojourners, the Hebrews, in a land that's not theirs in Egypt for 400 years. That's exactly what we've studied. Then verse 14 of the same promise. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, Egypt, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That's a summary of everything we're going to see in the chapters ahead. Then this, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. We talked in the fall about how that, in just three verses, what a succinct summary of everything leading from the end of Abraham and the patriarch's life right through to the entrance into the promised land. But that's the promise and God outlining it very specifically with much detail. So God coming down here in Exodus is the next action in fulfillment of that promise. That's one uh, purpose behind the revelation on the mountain here in Exodus. Two, Remember, it wasn't just promise fulfillment revealed to Moses. It was the great name of God. The great name of God revealed. Moses asks, what name should I give them? God gives, the, God gives Moses all of this revelation, all of this mission. In one of the protests, Moses says, well, what name should I give them? Who should I say is sending me? And God responds and says, I am who I am. Say to them, I am has sent you. Remember, the name revealed in the verb of being, the word of existence, I am. God says, I am not some old deity or coming deity. He says, I simply am. I am, and Israel knows me. In fact, more than that, remember in the same encounter, God says, this is how you know that you know me, Moses. He says, I am the God of your father. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, I'm not a foreign deity like you've seen in Egypt. I am not some new deity, and I'm not some coming deity. I am and continue to be your God, the only God, the eternal God. That is who is appearing to you on this mountain. We recount, Westmount, how in that revelation of God, that call of God on Moses, remember, following that, the many protests of Moses. Yes, Moses had many excuses for not heeding God's call. Yeah, remember, this was not about Moses' will, right? It's not about whether he would want to and all the different protests. No, it wasn't about Moses' will, but this was about God's sovereign will. And when God has a sovereign will, we've learned over and over again, not only in Exodus, but in our study of Scripture, His will be done. His sovereign decree and will cannot be thwarted. So Moses, after the pruning, the preparation, and the patience, this Moses is ready, ready to stand before Pharaoh. And of course, we looked at that very first initial encounter in the fall and the subsequent one where we left off. Now, a few necessary reminders before we jump back into these confrontations with Pharaoh and most famously here in chapter 7, a couple things. First... Remember that Moses faced rejection initially. As we just said, he had a very um, preview-oriented first look with Pharaoh. If you remember that all the way back in chapter 5, remember that. And that went badly. 
to, to give you an understatement, not just with Pharaoh, but remember with his own people. In fact, remember the, the Hebrew chiefs, the overseers even go into Pharaoh to look for respite, but they come back out and remember they meet Moses and Aaron on the way. Remember this in chapter 5, verse 20. This is what they say to them. They met, these are the over, Hebrew overseers, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They're upset. Didn't go well uh, with his own people. But even more, then Moses turns to the Lord, verse 22 of chapter 5. Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Remember that despair, uh, that even mini pity party we would say from Moses remember that after that first rejection so we remember that uh, again before we get into our text this morning that initially it has gone bad with Pharaoh Moses has gone back to the Lord been recharged and is appearing again but initially there was rejection and as we think about that rejection secondly we recount this that rejection from Pharaoh uh, that it didn't go well was predicted by God. Here's the amazing thing that we really set the table for in the fall. God predicted over and over not only that it wouldn't go well, not only that he would be rejected, Moses, but that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened. And this is so key. In fact, if we go further back than chapter 5 to chapter 4, back to the initial call on the mountain, this is precisely what Yahweh said to Moses. Listen to this again, chapter 4, verse 21. God says, Moses, but I will harden his heart, Pharaoh's heart, so that he will not let the people go. This is what he has told him. Just like he told prophets right of old, we've looked at Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, over and over God says, I am calling you, man of God, to go to a people who will not listen to you. And this has been the pattern over and over, no different here to Moses. I'm calling you on a mission with a message for someone to people and they will not listen so we looked at that in fact it was repeated not only uh, there what stated not just initially but after that initial rejection note this this now gets us into chapter 7 remember again after that initial rejection even when Moses came back to the Lord and, and in, in other words said what happened God reminds him he said this is what I told you look at chapter 7 verse 3 he said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. That's the, the, the prophesied word from our Lord over and over again. But note this, again in chapter 7, verse 4, he goes on to say, Then, so that is what will happen, but then after that I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Now hold on to that really for the weeks ahead and the texts ahead that we'll see but we know just simply there as we've seen back in Genesis even from the initial promise God has a program and a plan it is never changed and all he simply does when God's people face uh, despair and rejection is to remind them of the promise and plan and that's just so important so so important but again remember God has predicted to Moses that 
Pharaoh's heart would be hardened. Now the text cannot be clear here that God controls completely the hearts of men and is sovereign over not just hearts but the whole circumstances in Egypt. Again, we look multiple times at this truth of Scripture. This is so important as we are reminded of the foundation for what we're studying here in Exodus, that God is sovereign over kingdoms and kings and all creation, all of it. God and God alone moves, opens, and directs the hearts of all men. Remember Proverbs 21.1 says, The kings of the earth are in the hands of God, and he moves their hearts as they will. That's complete sovereignty over all things, right down to the human heart. So if God says, Moses, Christian, if God says he will harden the heart of Pharaoh, then the result of Pharaoh's hardened heart should be absolutely no surprise. One more thing we would note, looking back by way of recap, not only the rejection, not only the hardened heart, but that rejection from Pharaoh was a result also of something that he lacked. So remember, and we're going to look at this more in the weeks to come, not just God saying his heart would be hardened, I will harden his heart. There's something else going on in Pharaoh himself. Again, we're reminded at the beginning of chapter 5. Remember this, this initial encounter between Moses and Pharaoh. Remember what Pharaoh says. Chapter 5, Afterward Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, this is the initial encounter, this is what the Lord says, they say, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And note Pharaoh's response in this initial encounter. Chapter 5, he says, But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Note that, Who is the Lord, Pharaoh says, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Then he says, I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So important. Westmount, listen. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? I do not know the Lord. Really becomes paramount as we understand Pharaoh's responses in what's to come. That confession by Pharaoh, really the red carpet for all we're about to see. In fact, as we return to Pharaoh's court this morning, we consider that sentiment that Pharaoh says he doesn't know the Lord. And we're not going to read the whole passage that we're studying today. We're just going to work through it. But by way of a preview, go to chapter 7. And look, we zero right in on verse 17. This really is the point. So remember, Pharaoh says in that initial encounter, I don't know the Lord. Who is this Lord? Look at verse 17 now as Moses is again before Pharaoh. And he says this, Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. In other words, okay, Pharaoh, you don't know who the Lord is, but by this, by what you're about to see, what's about to be unfolding before you, by this then you will know, you shall know the Lord. Again, it's as if to say to Pharaoh, yes, that is correct. You do not know me. So as a result of that lack of knowledge, this and again, as we will see today in uh, its initiation and unfolding in the chapters and weeks ahead, we will see the result of not knowing God. In fact, specifically, we're going to see the consequences of not knowing God. Yes, note the purpose of these plagues, starting with the first here in chapter 7. Here it is. So that the hard-hearted, the stubborn, the rebellious, the anti-God would know the great I Am. That's the purpose so that by this, 
the signs, the wonders, the revelation, they would know that Yahweh is God. So key. That again, friends, is the point of all we will see in these next few chapters. Now, those are some intro matters looking back. We need to cover some introductory matters looking ahead. And the first would be this. I just simply say this. You come to texts of scripture uh, that may uh, at first appear harder. There's a lot of judgment in these texts. And so often the temptation, I've said this before, uh, people would have to just skip over texts like this because they're hard. But we don't do that. We preach verse by verse. And whatever comes, we preach it. We teach it. So we're not going to skip texts because they are hard or because they include things like judgment. That's what the Word of God has to say for a purpose. So I preface some of these very difficult things, some of the judgment of God unleashed on Egypt, as difficult as it may be to consider and to read, it doesn't take away from the fact that it's true. So that'd be the first thing we need to say initially before we get into these devastating plagues. The next thing we want to mention is the encounter encounter that we'll observe in the coming weeks it's been depicted so many times whether maybe as you're just reading and you have a picture in your mind or of course Hollywood is depicted in many ways this encounter most famously in Exodus I need to say off the top this is not a showdown of Moses versus Pharaoh this is not like the two boxing gloves there and it's Moses in this corner Pharaoh in this no no nor is it a showdown of Israel versus Egypt that's not the showdown either it's not Moses Pharaoh, it's not Israel versus Egypt. Those are all players, but they are not the main ones. In fact, we would more accurately say they are not the main one. No, this encounter is between the God of Israel, Yahweh, and the gods of Egypt. That's who this encounter is about. And in fact, that is cemented in Exodus 12, 12, just before the final plague and the coming Passover, Yahweh himself says this. Listen carefully as we uh, look at God's commentary on this encounter. He says, I will execute judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Not judgment on Pharaoh, not judgment on Egypt, but on all the gods of Egypt. God says, by this, what's about to happen with that final plague, I am judging all the so-called gods of Egypt. I am judging all the gods that the Egyptians hold dear. That's so key. That's what's going on here. And what you should start processing is the fact that even there, it's not really an encounter at all, right? Let's think about this. When you think about the so-called gods of Egypt, they're not really gods at all. I'm going to talk about that later and throughout this mini-series. They're not gods at all. Through the miraculous, and by the way, when you say miraculous, that is the realm of the so-called gods, right? If anyone is supposed to be able to wield or, uh, you know, do acts of uh, miracles and wonders, it's God's. Uh, but we will see that put to rest. And what about signs and wonders? Same kind of way to say the miraculous. No matter what it is that the Egyptian gods are purportedly able to do, you will see over and over again, God demonstrate that he is the God, God alone. That really the gods of Egypt are not gods at all. So that's number one, the encounter between Yahweh, the real, and the gods of Egypt, the unreal. Secondly, we need to discuss this idea of plagues. They're most famously known as that, and it is true in chapter 9, verse 3, we see them addressed with that very word. Yet also in this account, they are referred to as, in chapter 4, remember, miracles, 
verse 21. That's what they're referred to. Chapter 7, we've already seen them referred to as signs and wonders. Really, again, both ideas, they're getting to the supernatural element of these. And then even in that same chapter, remember we looked at this last time, they're called in verse 4, chapter 7, verse 4, acts of judgment. Now that really gets at it. These are not just miracles, not just signs and wonders, but signs and wonders for the purpose of judgment. That last one is so helpful because call them whatever you want, their origin is clear. They're from God and with a purpose to judge. They're from God as judgment on a ruler, on a nation, on the rebellious that deny him. And that's just so important, that supernatural element, the miraculous element of these plagues. Because here it is, Westbound, these plagues are not just mishaps. They're not just well-timed natural occurrences that Moses leverages as demonstrations of, of power. No, Church, let's be clear as we begin this study. There, the, the plagues were not natural occurrences. There's no scientific explanation here. This is not red silt coming up that looks like blood. This is not uh, an overrun little area of frogs that people extrapolate to the whole region. No, this is... As the very magicians later on will say in chapter 8, verse 19, the finger of God. The magicians of Egypt themselves will say, this has no other explanation but the finger of God. In fact, that reminds us coming from Egypt itself, that declaration of the origin of the plagues. This text, this account, leaves absolutely no room for natural explanation. Let us not... Uh, align with liberal scholarship and, and those in unbelief that want to rationalize away these miraculous events of God for the purpose of judgment. And that common, modern, intellectual denial of the miraculous, it raises a final introductory point. And Westmount, listen, this is so important. This is the plague of unbelief. This is really the plague in the plagues it's the spine and the underpinning of all of it. It's the plague of unbelief. Through the coming weeks, as we examine these plagues, you will ask, I know this, you're going to ask this at some point, did this really happen? I mean, did frogs really fall from the sky? Hail everywhere? Did it happen just like this? And as you do, I want to submit to you, when you ask those questions, I want to submit this to you this morning, that Pharaoh's heart is not the only heart that's in view here. With each plague, as they intensify and the miracles magnify, I ask you this, will you be slowly tuning in or will you be slowly tuning out? As the plagues intensify, will your belief in God intensify or will it wane? Will it wane? As the signs and wonders progress, Will your skepticism also develop? Is that what's going to progress and develop through these plague accounts? Friends, let us learn from Pharaoh, who observed, listen, he observed, he had a front row seat to the power and might of God. Isn't that amazing? He witnessed them with his own eyes. Yet he remained hardened toward God, even in the face of God miraculously manifest. He remained hardened. And beloved, that's a warning to us. Let us not marvel at Pharaoh's unbelief, all the while still harboring our own unbelief. Let's not do this. I say that again. Let's not marvel at Pharaoh's unbelief, 
all the while still harboring our own. Friends, I don't know where you are with God this morning, but I suggest that our study of this account in the chapters ahead is given to you today so that by this you shall know that he is the Lord. Note that. These are given so that you would know God alone. This is not a historical account in and of itself. This is given eternally for the purposes of belief for all time. Because church, the realities of not knowing God are not just matters of opinion. (coughs) This is important. This is not just belief in God, contrary to what many would say today. Belief in God and not knowing God is not just a matter of opinion. It's not just a matter of, well, that you're just a spiritual person, or that's your crotch, or it's not for me. No. Listen to me. God's reality was undeniable to Pharaoh, regardless of his opinion. One of the amazing things of this text in Exodus is that Pharaoh stands with a hardened heart and unbelief as his entire kingdom is being turned upside down. It's just incredible. Yet note this, even though Pharaoh denied God, note it, even though Pharaoh denied God, it didn't alter the reality of God. You see that? He, he could deny, he could stand on a river bank, he could stand in his palace all he wants and deny God, but it didn't take away from the fact that frogs were raining down and cattle were dying and all kinds of judgment on God was coming. His belief or unbelief didn't alter the reality of God. And here it is, denying God, rejecting God, hardening your heart to God because of the realities of God has consequences for you. Yes, as we'll see starting today, the circumstances for those like Pharaoh has very certain consequences. Not knowing God is given a clear warning here. And it begins with a description, which is our first point this morning. It's this, the characteristics of not knowing God characteristics of not knowing God. Look at verse 14 with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. There it is again, and we've seen this repeatedly. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Pharaoh here exhibits the most notable characteristic of those who do not know God, the hardened heart. Again, it is indeed the most common and the most obvious characteristic. This is the characteristic prior to salvation that Jerry walked us through last week. Remember Ephesians 2, the hardened heart that is in essence a dead heart in trespasses and sins. Thus remember, with such a heart, we refuse God. We align with, remember Ephesians 2, 2, we align with the sons of disobedience. That's their characteristic nature. Hardened heart, a disobedient heart. Yes, disobedience, the fruit of a hardened heart. Disobedience is how you know your heart is hardened. It's as simple as that. And not coincidentally, that is what we see from Pharaoh here. Look at the end of verse 14. God says, Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. In other words, he heard God's command and what? He refused. Here's the command, refuses the command, hence that is disobedience. And by the way, Westmount, you see that confirmed at the end of verse 16. Where the text says, but so far, Moses says to Pharaoh, but so far, because of that refusal, you have not obeyed. Can't be clear. Pharaoh, you stand in disobedience. Westmont, that is what a hardened heart looks like. And by the way, that's what a hardened heart does. It doesn't just sit hard in itself. It has action. 
A hardened heart refuses to obey God. That's one characteristic of not knowing God. Another, you'll find in verse 15, look at it. God says, Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. This is key here when you think about, uh, again, the Nile River being the focal point of Egypt. Nile River, in fact, the longest and mightiest river in Africa, and, and some would argue maybe in the world, depending on where it, where it would end, versus other rivers. You know, the Nile is an amazing thing. In fact, you look at some of those satellite images of Egypt, and you see all brown, but there you see like a spine going through the country, little blue and green, the Nile River, and you just see the, the spine of life going through this barren country incredible might and length and size of this river and of course not surprisingly because of its uh, preeminence in Egypt and especially to daily life it was and still is prized by the Egyptian people from ancient times it was deified meaning it was considered a god itself Egyptians were a polytheistic people they had many gods and very much so everything that moved was a god to the Egyptians animals trees all of that was a god to these egyptian people and we're going to get to know some of those gods in the weeks ahead as they really are in many ways woven throughout these plagues remember as the judgment and indictment against the gods of egypt god is speaking directly to some of them through the nature of an individual plague but we'll get to that however for this first plague the setting is the nile the mighty nile river the Nile, with its natural might, was ripe for worship. Can you not just picture that? Here is the mighty Nile going throughout the entire country, giving life, so-called daily life, to so many. Hence, it was a major god for the Egyptians. And again, they had many, but the Nile was prominent. They referred to him as Hapi, H-A-P-I. He was known as the god of the Nile, or the spirit of the Nile, as they would have called him. And Hapi was worshipped religiously by the Egyptians and especially the leaders. So we tie this to our text. So consider Pharaoh as he heads out to the riverbank this particular morning. He is taking time with Hapi, with the spirit of the Nile. He is actually going out for a time of worship. Maybe with a ritual bath, maybe with a ceremonial drink, or maybe just to bow down to the mighty river god. Whatever the action that morning, his presence by the river was likely no different, and here's the key, to other leaders before and after. This is what they did. Feeling the weight of leadership, wanting to set their day and orient their day with help that would be outside of themselves, and they know, they knew, and uh, would, would look for help in all the ways they could, they looked to the gods. So they would have enacted this ritual of going out to the riverbank morning after morning, to give worship to Hapi, the river god. The worship the Nile, and this listen, to give worship to one of their gods, which of course would be a false god. Pharaoh is engaged in false worship here. Remember, there are no other gods to worship. God, god himself says in Isaiah 46, 9, I am God, and there is no other. There is no other god. So what Pharaoh is uh, conducting himself in on that riverbank is false worship. Pharaoh is worshiping falsely. And church, here's another characteristic of not knowing God. It's simply this, false worship. 
This worship can be as visible as the prophets of Baal. You remember them dancing around the altar, cutting themselves, crying out and appealing to a God that didn't exist to Baal in 1 Kings 18. It can be as visible and pathetic as that, or it can be as hidden as Achan in Joshua 7, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, burying their objects of worship in their tents. Given that hidden worship, hidden false worship, it can be visible or hidden. At Westmount, note this, the worship of false things always comes with the denial of true things. Let me say that again. The worship of false things always comes with the denial of true things. That's how you see people that are worshiping falsely, whether in public or private, always come to some sort of denial of truth. Mark it, it happens every time. In fact, we see that very truth in this text. God reminds Pharaoh through Moses of what he, the truth he has denied. Look at verse 15. Referenced here, Moses says to Pharaoh, the staff that turned into a serpent. In other words, the truth, the very real thing that swallowed the false. Doesn't matter what your magicians conjured up. Doesn't matter if it looked like the real thing. At the end of the day, the true thing swallowed up the false thing. Remember that account of the staffs? And Moses staffed the real thing, swallowing up the magic act. And even with that sign, Pharaoh still denied the almighty power of God. Just incredible, the hardened heart. It reminds me of that denial. Remember in Mark 3, Jesus is in a synagogue. He knows they're looking to attack him. And he asks them, that this is the scribes and Pharisees, remember, looking to attack Jesus. And he looks at them. There's a man with a withered hand there, a man that needs help, needs healing. And he looks at them and he says, is it good on the Sabbath to do right? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath, in other words? And basically, Jesus looking at them to say, of course it would be. But you, in your hardened heart, not only want to attack me, but you want to deny truth. And this is the key. Remember, he says, stretch out your hand to that man and he heals him. And you would think, as we would have thought in Pharaoh's court, after witnessing a supernatural act, more than that, after witnessing the very finger of God, after witnessing the signs and wonders manifest from Yahweh, that they would bow down and say, you are the true God. Like you see with Nebuchadnezzar and, and Naaman in the Old Testament, you would think that that's what they would do. But no, what do they do in Mark 3? The end of that account says this, they gathered with the Herodians, another enemy of Jesus, looking for a way to destroy him. And it's precisely what we have here with Pharaoh. The, the, the miraculous sign and wonder, far from convincing, not that that ever does, what it does is it hardens the heart even more to say, no, I need to destroy this Moses, destroy this people. Same thing here, beloved. These are the characteristics of not knowing God. A hardened heart, disobedience, false worship, and denial. Mark it every time. Pharaoh here in this account is a picture of all of them. And such... With that kind of character, noted, it doesn't just sit there. Here's where the text goes next. That kind of character of not knowing God is condemned. Is condemned. That's our second point. The condemnation with not knowing God. We continue in verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that's in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. Thus says the Lord in context here, it's as if to say, Pharaoh, because of that character, because of not knowing me, here is my sentence. Here's the divine gavel for not knowing me. With the same staff that you deny, the same truth 
sign and wonder you denied with that same staff I will have my servant Moses strike the Nile strike your God instead of giving water it will give you blood now before we go any further it's imperative that we note this God doesn't look at Pharaoh's unknowing character and say you know what Pharaoh it's just not your fault you know Pharaoh I understand that's just how you are and you know after all look at your circumstances you're in Egypt you're in Egypt God doesn't look at Pharaoh's hardness his disobedience his false worship his denial God doesn't look at all of that and chuckle to himself with oh Pharaoh oh that old stubborn ruler of Egypt no church how so many like to think that God is like that with them is that not true how often we want to rationalize with unbelievers or the rebellious or the hard-hearted and say, well, you know, God just has a smirk for them, and God understands. No, beloved, consider this text. There is always, mark it, always a consequence for not knowing God. And it is anything but funny. In fact, what you see here is a condemnation from God because of that character. God doesn't write it off as a personality quirk. In fact, what he does is he points his finger in judgment. God says, what you turn for worship in life, listen, I will turn to blood, thus says the Lord. And this is no annoyance or minor inconvenience. Let's look at the text. Look at verse 18. The fish in the Nile shall die. And the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the wild. Three clear consequences there. The first two affecting the senses. They have to do with your taste and your smell all in upheaval. These very normal matters of the sense will be judged. Your taste, your smell. And along the way, note the third here, you will grow weary of trying to use this Nile water. That would be an understatement. Trying to find good water in blood, for sure that would be weary. And this judgment, Pharaoh, will be comprehensive. Look at verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, and note this, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there should be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. In other words, every source of water that they have the judgment is on them water will be turned to blood that's outside in all their canals all their pools and inside in all their vessels household vessels amazing and finally we need to note this when we think about the judgment here beloved this is no idle threat this is not god saying you know pharaoh don't make me count to three no when God pronounces judgment, it will come to pass. Now look at verse 20, verse 20 and 21. We see that immediately. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In other words, he spoke and it came to be. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And lo and behold, all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And we just need to pause and note, just as God said. God does it. God condemns Pharaoh and Egypt. And beloved, mark it. A holy God must do this. That is because 
anything less than recognition and worship of a holy and perfect God demands a penalty. It must. Anything less than full obedience to perfection, anything less than complete subjection to the perfect one, to the holy one, is nothing less than cosmic treason. By nature, such character is condemned. This is a condemnation on that character from Pharaoh. In fact, when we think about the condemnation that is already there, and before we think that this is limited to just Pharaoh, that this, this condemnation that is warranted on such character is true for all of those that would inherently have a fallen character like Pharaoh. In fact, I take you now, you can turn there to John 3.16, the most famous verse I would submit to you in all of Scripture. Many unbelievers know this verse. And the comfort. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but what? Have eternal life. You would cling to that and in terms of maybe this is what you need to do to have eternal life and all the many different opinions of that verse which we don't have time to get into now. But here's the context. Lest any are tempted to go to that verse and walk away thinking that this is simply something just more, something that just needs to be added. Here is the reason why that verse is so important. Jesus gives the context. Listen to verse 17 and 18. For God did not send a son into the world to condemn the world. Now that's interesting. Note it. This is not him condemning the world, and we're going to see why in a minute. But in order that the world might be saved through him. So in other words, Jesus is going on a mission not to condemn, and we'll see why in a moment, but to save the world. And yes, the world needs saving. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him, thus, is not condemned. Okay, but here it is. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, all kinds of warning bells need to be going off and uh, connections to our text in Exodus. If he doesn't believe, if his heart is hardened, in other words, if you're standing like Pharaoh, you're condemned already before Pharaoh even does any of these things that he's done and will see him do. He is condemned already because he doesn't believe. And of course, Pharaoh doesn't. But beloved, many today do not believe. Many today stand, like the text in John, like Jesus in John tells us, stands condemned already. Beloved, that's because they do not know God. And they do not believe. And let's consider our text in light of Jesus' words and in light of the greater testimony of Scripture. Beloved, to not know God is to seek water wearily. See the picture? From pools of blood. That's what's going on here. To not know God is to live a life that is hard because it's a condemned life. How many would say life is hard or living a condemned life? They have nothing in order to help them deal with that. To not know God is to have our greatest treasure become our greatest plagues. Is that not true? The very object of the false worship, the very thing people turn to to life, turns against them in the end and it becomes the rod of judgment from God. And nothing, beloved, I would say, sums this up, this picture of not knowing God, uh, the, the present condemnation and the future judgment more than the letter to the Second Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians letter from Paul. This is to a healthy church, and this is what Paul says, especially in their affliction. We pick it up in 2 Thessalonians 1, chapter 5. He says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, 
that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're also suffering. In other words, what's about to happen, what I'm about to say, is evidence of a judging God, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. In other words, he will take care of those afflicting you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. And then this, when, so here's your future, the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. How? Verse 8, in flaming fire to do what? Inflicting vengeance on those, note it, who do not know God. And more on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's the characteristic nature of those today that do not recognize God don't know him and don't obey him. In verse 9, they, like Pharaoh, you see here temporally and in the present, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, so not just now, but then, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you is believed. In other words, let's sum that up. There is a present condemnation and a hardness of life that goes with a hardened heart. But also, what awaits those is a future judgment. And, and what is seen here in the plagues? Pharaoh has no idea how bad it's going to get. This present judgment is not an annoyance. It's condemnation to, to wake him up, to show him what is to come, the future judgment. All wrapped up here in this first plague account. This is present and future condemnation to those who do not know God. All right, in our remaining time, let's look at the last few verses here and the confusion from not going God. That's our last point, confusion from not knowing God. Consider verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. Here they go again. We return to the magicians, the court magicians. We've seen this before. Imitating the staff to a snake, assembling their little trick to imitate. Remember, that's because that's all that they can do. Pale imitations, nothing real. Like good illusionists today who can make anything look real. I don't know if you've been to a, a real high-end magic show. We're talking about the David Copperfields and such of the world. You sit there and you watch the magic and actually you think, wow, this just looks so real. That's because they're good at what they do. Like illusionists today, like illusionists back then. They can make anything look real. Yet again, we know they can only imitate. And note this, they can only imitate. They cannot initiate. Even more, they cannot counteract. True power, listen, true power wouldn't just ape what's going on here. True power would fix it. True power wouldn't make more blood. True power would turn blood to water. True power is sovereign over these events. In fact, not only would it counteract what it would make better, true power, as you think about the New Testament and the one with true power, true power would turn water to wine, not more water to blood. True power would fix what is wrong here. Mark at Westmount, true power would not make it worse. I was thinking this week, studying this text, that there's people on the riverbank watching the magicians turn more water to more blood, probably throwing up their hands saying, you know what, enough with the blood already. Could you do something to help us? It's like someone throwing kerosene on a fire. Like, what are you doing? That proves nothing. That actually proves that you just make the situation worse. Enough with the blood. That's what pale imitations do. They can only imitate. They cannot fix. 
hence is people turn to imitators. It demonstrates the confusion with not knowing God. And here it is, thinking that more of something harmful, more of something harmful, even when you're feeling the effects of it, you think that counts for something and you just turn to it more and more. And in more, you think that it does something. That's the confusion of not knowing God. Turning to harmful things and turning to more of harmful things. No imitation only leaves you in the same place. And that's where, back to verse 22, look at it. Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. You see, in the end, turning to imitation only leads you back to a hardness of heart, and you stay there. After the smoke and mirrors, Pharaoh still has a problem. Do you see that? His water is polluted. It doesn't matter what the magicians purported to do. He still has a problem. And his next response is just so telling. Look at verse 23. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. What a scene. Pharaoh, the leader, you can think of all the people looking to the leader, goes back to his house. In other words, he buries his hand in the sand. Oh, the compounding confusion of those that do not know God. The, you've heard this before. Maybe if I turn my back, it will all go away. This is what people do when they do not know God. Just put their hands over their eyes and over their ears. Maybe if I just close my eyes long enough, it's all going to go away. That's the confusion of not knowing God. That that will fix your problems. Just bury your head in the sand. Just go to your house. Of course, beloved, it never does. Pharaoh's problems, far from getting settled, are only just getting started. As he tries to ignore a river of blood, his people can't. Look at verse 24. All the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. What a scene. As he turns into his house, people are forced to dig for water, scratching, clawing for groundwater because of the blood in the river. And let's understand, digging for subterranean water would have been hard. Ask anyone who's ever dug a well if it's an easy effort. No, it's drudgery trying to get to that subterranean water. Beloved, this scene would make a laughable comic caption if it wasn't so real. How many are confused today, frantically digging for relief? Mercifully, the confusion, the condemnation is temporary. Noted, it's temporary, at least here. This plague and chapter closes with verse 25. Look at this. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Seven full days had passed. Seven full days of blood water and then while one week of misery, but only one week of misery. You say, well, that's miserable. It is, but it has a limit. And the limit demonstrates it, ha it is a mercy from God. In one sense, what they deserved was a lifetime of blood water. But what God, not only in his justice, but in his mercy gives is just seven full days. Way to say, here is a warning. Here is a warning. God in his great mercy offers respite. He offers clarity in the confusion. And imagine how clear this would have been to an onlooker. Pharaoh, give it up. You, you, your, your magicians can't do anything to fix it. Pharaoh, you're clearly seeing the finger of God. Yield and submit, repent, turn to this holy God. That's the clarity. Make it go away. And here God, even in that hardened heart, offers mercy, which is just incredible. That's what our great merciful God does. Always slow to anger. Always slow to anger. With us, beloved, you know that. And here with Pharaoh. 
And Pharaoh will do much, as we'll see in the weeks to come, to incite the Lord's anger. There is much more rejection and hardening coming. And yet, wondrously, there is much more mercy coming. This is the amazing thing. This really should be one plague and done. Because that's what's deserved to a hardened heart, right? But God just doesn't give one. He gives ten. Ten. And they progressively get worse. And that's because the warnings progressively intensify. But that's the mercy of God. He doesn't have to give one, two, three, four. But he does. Because he's long-suffering. And friend, I wonder if you're listening today, if you found any connection to any of this. Maybe you've said those characteristics are mine, the disobedience, the denial. I understand that. That's me. Maybe you've said that my water in my life is condemned. It stinks and I am weary of my circumstance. Maybe you've said I am confused. I have played God in my own life. I am the one scratching and clawing. I've turned my back on the true God and I am drowning. Maybe you're saying right now, I don't know God and I don't know what to do. If that is you, let me offer you hope today. You can know God. You can know God. And how? Ask Him. Pray. Call out to Him. Knowing God starts there. That's where it begins. A cry out to the living and true God. I leave you with this encouragement from Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The Lord is near to all those who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you in spite of all of our sinfulness, our rebellion, our hardened heart, all that we deserve, you extend and extend for a time, a long time, really, mercy. You give us lives, entire lives, in which we can lay down our arms and repent and turn to you. You don't have to do that, Father, but you do, and I thank you. God, I pray for any of us listening that have not done that, that are still in rebellion to you, that today might be the day that they lay down arms, repent and turn to you. And for those of us that call you Lord, may we be encouraged, Lord, by your mercy, as your word reminds us new every morning. Father, we serve a great God. We love you and want to go out now and serve you under that mercy. God, help us to do so. In Christ's mighty name we pray. Amen.